1 Corinthians uh, 12, verse 27 and 28. Paul says this. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, and helps. We'll stop right there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather this morning around your word, we gather around Jesus Christ. We ask that as we seek to understand your word, that Lord, you would open our eyes, you would enlighten our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not just to understand uh, a moralism, not, not to understand words on a page, not even to leave this place bettering ourselves, but Lord, uh, to, to enlighten our hearts to the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ, that we would be captured and entranced that we would be allured, that we would be attracted to the glory of the King of glory. We ask today that you would minister to us, that you would teach us more about what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, and in doing so, what it means to operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Specifically, what it means to help, what it means to serve. We ask that you would help us to push back the flesh and the thoughts that are perhaps right now competing for our attention, the struggles, the turmoil, the suffering, the confusion, the drama. We ask, that, uh, we ask Lord, as the psalmist declared, that in, in your presence would be the fullness of joy. That as we gather here by faith, that the joy of the Lord would be our strength and you would strengthen us to receive from you all that you have destined for us to take. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, as I was thinking about the gift of serving, speaking specifically about the gift of helps or the gift of serving, they're often used synonymously. I immediately begin to think of my own family, specifically starting with uh, my wife, Brianna, and myself. Since the day we met, we knew from that, that first moment that we were, uh, I don't know if you want to say it this way, but we were cut out of the same cloth, the cloth of introversion. We're both introverts, and there's something magical about two introverts hanging out with one another. We don't need a whole lot from one another. We do hang out with each other, and it's not like we hate big groups of people. I, I hope not. <laughs> it's not like we, we don't like to be around people. It's that when we are around people, we, we often retreat into this place of solitude or quietness to recharge is probably a, a good way of putting it. And so when Brianna and I hang out, we, you know, we hang out with each other, we do things, we go on dates, we hang out with people, but there is that great bulk of time where we love to just seek out solitude. Brianna and I can hang out in a room, and she could just be going crazy on her serger, making stuff. I could be on the couch reading a book, and we could just be getting energized on each other without speaking a single word. It's a, it's a great deal. <laughs> it's awesome. We're cut out of the same cloth. Then we had a daughter. 
She's almost 12 months old. And she, I, I haven't administered a personality test to her yet, but I'm almost certain that she is as extroverted as you can possibly be. So where we love space, you know, and solitude, she hates space. She likes to be in your business. Where we love just peace and quiet and ocean waves and the ruminating on our own thoughts. She loves to just yell and scream. If the room is too quiet, she'll crawl in and she'll just start chirping. Just, ma, ma. She's like, she's basically playing Marco Polo with you. Ma, and you reply, ma, ma. And you'll just do that back and forth. She can't handle quietness. She can't handle solitude. She can't handle space. And I feed off of space. That's what enables me to be around a lot of people is just a little bit of space to myself. And where Brianna and I understand that about each other and we allow it with one another, Abigail has no clue and she doesn't care at all. Now, 99% of the time, it's adorable, right? Nobody hates a little baby running into your business and interrupting things. But then there's those times where after work, like on a Friday after a full day of work, you, you know what this is like. You come home, well, if you're introverted, you know what it's like. You come home, you sit down on the couch, and you kick off your shoes, and all you want to do is just sit there. And maybe for me, it's, you know, read a book. And so I remember coming home one day, and I was just, just burnt out and tired, and I just wanted to relax. And so I, I sit down, I actually lay down on the carpet, just spread out, open up this book, and I start reading. I'm in my bubble. And Abigail just comes into the room. She immerses herself fully into my space. And while I'm trying to have peace and quiet, she actually reaches out, grabs both of my lips with her, her, her nails, drags my face into the carpet. And I look up at her and I go, ow! And she just giggles. And that's her way of saying, and that's what she always does. I'm in the room now, play with me. Now, like I said, that's a, it's probably one of the, the fleeting pleasures in my life. I, I love it. But it has, on, on several occasions, taught me that I'm, I'm more selfish than I originally thought. And I noticed this uh, mainly with her because, you know, at least with Brianna, she knows I'm selfish. But she gives me a lot of leeway. She's gracious. She's more merciful than I deserve. Uh, most of my friends are more gracious towards me than I deserve. Abigail rolls into the room and says, hey, I'm here. Let the, let's get the party started. And she buries my face into the ground, literally. And so with her, I, I start to learn some of those edges are, are, are rubbing against each other. And I learn very quickly, wow, I'm, I'm not quite as entitled to the things that I was before she came along. It's probably true of 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 me and of us before my daughter came along. It's just that she's teaching me that uh, more boldly and more abruptly than ever before. I'm, I'm more selfish than I, than I imagined. And it began to make me wonder. I wonder how many times I've secluded myself into a corner away from people and they've gotten you know, this, this perception about me like, oh, he's too busy for me or he doesn't want to talk to me. And it's, it's been Abby that's, that's rubbed those rough edges off of me and shown me but I'm more selfish and I'm more self-entitled than I'm, I'm comfortable with admitting. The reason I bring that up is because the Corinthian church is suffering from self-entitlement and selfishness as well. 
you see in the first chapter, because we're looking in chapter 12, but in, in chapter 1, Paul actually addresses some of these things by saying, hey, some of you, you, you call yourself a, a uh, with Apollos. Some of you are like, no, I'm with the Apostle Paul. Others are like, no, I'm with the Apostle Peter. You've secluded yourself into these little cloisters where you feel this sense of tribalism. You, you belong to that group, and so you don't like this group, and that group belongs to this group. They don't like that group. And in the midst of all of this tribalism, these factions, these, these groupings, these clubs, these special elite uh, uh, divisions, all of this sin is erupting. You've got sexual immorality. You've got, uh, uh, in addition to the, these factions, you've got uh, 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 pride and sin. You've got sin. You've got people not dealing with sin. All of this stuff is erupting out of this sense of entitlement and pride uh, and selfishness. And you know what the solution for my selfishness was? God gave me a family. Britt once told me that he is convinced that one of the most sanctifying things in the life of a Christian is kids. Second to that is a spouse. Together, it's like God's quick way of sanctifying a brother. You know what I'm saying? You know what Paul's solution for the Corinthian church was? To point out what their family was. Right after he said, hey, you guys are divided and you shouldn't be. You know what he says right after that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? He says, hey, is Christ divided? You belong to a family now. You are the body of Christ. Is Christ divided? And so from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12 where we are now is this explication. It's this explanation of what it means to be a family under the head of Jesus Christ. And so even things like the gifts of the Spirit come out of that family solution. Paul's saying, hey, this is what it means to be a family. Here's what it means to be a family. First of all, don't be divided. Is Christ divided? By the time we get to chapter 12, we see the gifts of the Spirit manifest in a family, which is very interesting because we sometimes, if we're, if we're a little scared of the gifts of the Spirit, like, ooh, that's weird. <laughs> Perhaps some of us are more prone Maybe we've seen the gifts abused, and so maybe our, our immediate inclination is to say, well, in order to keep things unified and, and, uh, and peaceful, we need to subdue some of these crazy gifts, and maybe a couple of those maybe we just don't even talk about. But Paul is of the opposite mindset. If we follow his trajectory from chapter one, he's essentially saying, hey, you want more unity? Then you need more gifts of the Spirit. You want more of this family orientation? Well, you need all of the gifts of the Spirit. Of course, operating in love and by the Holy Spirit. But you need more of the gifts, not less of the gifts. And so, we find ourselves in chapter 12 with him rattling off all of these gifts that seek to not only unify the, the body of Christ, but get our attention back on Jesus for each other's joy. And one of those gifts is the gifts of help. Or the gift of helps, excuse me. Um, the gift of helps is just like it sounds. You're helping those who need help. You're helping those who are less fortunate than you. This can obviously apply to the poor, to the neglected, to the widow, to the orphan, right? To the foster kid, fill in the blanks. But on a more broad level, it just means everybody in the body who needs help. I think it's nearly synonymous with the gift of serving that we find in Romans. 
if they're not overlapping, they are synonymous. The gift of serving, the gift of helps. Paul actually says, when he goes from chapter 1 through chapter 12, that the solution, or part of the solution of all this turmoil, all of this sin, all of this infighting, the gossip, the factions, everything that's wrong when people get together, is in part the gift of serving. Meaning that there are people in our body who the Holy Spirit has put his hand on specifically to help other people. God has supernaturally gifted certain people in the body of Christ to serve other people. Now maybe some of us hear that and we're like, oh really? That's awesome. So what you're telling me is there are certain people in this church who are designed by God to wait on me hand and foot. <laughs> I like this church. <laughs> that is a, that's something that just we kind of adopted that's, that's not true. That's something that we've mainly adopted from our culture. Our, our culture has a love affair with being served. Have you noticed? What happens when you roll into a, uh, not picking on any particular business, but what happens when you roll into Starbucks? What do you order? Coffee. You actually order more than coffee, don't you? You're not going into a place like Starbucks just for a commodity. You're, you're going in to be served. Uh, I believe, uh, I think Howard Schultz, the CEO, once said that he designed Starbucks to be that third place between the workplace and between home, meaning it's that place where there should be this sense of community. That's why there's board games over by this table that's surrounded by sofas. That's why the AC is on at a certain level. That's why you have this service with a smile, even though you're yelling at them because they got your order wrong. If you're a barista at Starbucks, you know the pain of that. When you go to a place like that, you are intending to be served and it's being supplied to you. Maybe even more than that, you're going because you want a certain experience. You want something out of it, far more than just a cup full of beans. And our culture meets that need. It's no fault of the coffee shops, it's no fault of the businesses, they're just giving what the human heart desperately desires. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with being served in a business or in a, a place to, to eat or drink. The problem is when we take things from culture and begin to drop them off into the church body. Because the church is not supposed to function like Starbucks. Right? Let me give you an example. Talked about the gift of prophecy. And the gift of tongues and the discerning of spirits. The distinguishing of spirits. What, what are some of the biggest abuses that happen with those more, more out, those gifts that are more out there in the public eye? Well, the distinguishing of spirits, uh, that tends to be abused when someone who has a critical spirit adopts it. You know what, you know what I mean? Like there's demons under every rock. Generally, there's demons in every person. So they just go around distinguishing people that have problems. It becomes about them looking for problems in everybody else. What about tongues? What are usually some of the disruptions that we see and the uh, uh, abuses with tongues that happen? Well, sometimes it's people, maybe even with good intentions, but they, they just want to be heard and seen. They want to make a scene. 
what are some of the common abuses that happen with the gift of prophecy? Well, perhaps that person uh, also wants a, a platform. Maybe they want to be seen. Maybe they want attention. Or maybe they want to speak with a certain amount of authority. And so they claim, thus saith the Lord. Maybe even if they're wrong. All of these things have to do with us wanting to be served. And you know how Paul handles the abuses of the gifts? He doesn't say, okay, don't use the gifts. <laughs> he says, make sure your gifts are packaged with the love of God. Because they're not about you. They're about edifying the church. You know what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1? He says, oh, if you speak with the tongues of angels, but you don't have love, you ain't nothing. He says in the following verse, in verse, uh, in verse 2, if you speak with the gift of prophecy, but you have no love, you're nothing. In other words, the gifts of the Spirit have to come with a sense of love for the other person. But that begs the question, well, what is, what is love? <laughs> Because if we are influenced by the culture in which we've been called to by God, well, the culture sees everything like we've been talking about through a kind of a self-centered lens. So how do we view love? Well, read a novel. Watch a sitcom. Listen to a popular song on the radio. What's love? Well, it usually has to do with what we receive out of this arrangement, right? I love you because you complete me. You do. I love you because you just fill that void in my soul. I love you because you're my soulmate. I love you because you. I love you because you do this to me. I love you because me, 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 me. Tim Keller once wrote that the Bible's view of love is not primarily measured by what you are able to receive out of a relationship, by, but by how much you are willing to give in a relationship. The biblical standard and measurement of love is how much you are willing to give to somebody else. Sometimes, maybe often, at your expense. That sounds a whole lot like serving. Love is nearly synonymous with serving. It's not just a feeling of affection. It's not a contractual arrangement where if you love me, I'll love you. And if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. It is, a me it is measured purely by how much you are willing to sacrifice in order to serve and give to another person. It's measured by your self-sacrificial serving. Paul says something like this in a... I think it's uh, Galatians chapter 5, where he says, For you were called to freedom, brethren, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but in love serve one another. For this is the law summarized in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is nearly synonymous with serving. Now this is a problem. I don't know about you, but it's a problem for me because if I were honest with myself, my immediate inclination isn't always to serve people, even though I tell myself that I'm serving people all the time. We are not by nature serving people. We are by fallen nature sinful people. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, if you're, if you're new here today and you're hearing the word sin being lobbed at you, you're like, get out, step off, bro. You don't even know me. Sin's kind of a harsh word to use, right? <laughs> Most people in our day and age don't really consider themselves to be that bad, right? But how do we know whether we're bad or whether we're good? If we're completely disconnected from a holy God, what is our standard to measure? Well, it's usually other people. <laughs> so what do we do? We usually look at someone far worse than ourselves and say, okay, how am I doing? Oh, not bad. Well, I'm not a murderer, so I guess I'm doing all right. I, I pay my taxes. You know, I eat celery and other greens, and I, you know, I recycle. I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm a, I'm a holy person, right? You know what Romans chapter 1 says? You know what? You don't have to be a murderer to be a sinner. And being a sinner, according to the Bible, doesn't mean you are as bad as you could be. It's simply diagnosing the condition of your heart. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the, the major problem with all of humanity because of sin is he says specifically, we exchanged the glory of God for the glory of the image of man. That's an archaic way of saying, instead of worshiping God's glory, we worshiped our own. We exchanged God in worship for ourselves. We are, by nature, by fallen nature, self-centered. That's why Martin Luther, the reformer, once put it this way. He said, sin could be explained in this way. It is the inward, uh, it is the heart curving in on itself. It's a curvation of the heart in on itself, which is crazy. Because if you think of why God made men and women, he made us for outward movement. He made us to go outwards. Think about the greatest commandment on the face of the planet is to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Outward and upward, our, our gaze is to look outside of ourselves to a transcendent holy being and to be overjoyed and satisfied in that. And then through that love for God, spilling out to his people, love your neighbor as yourself. Our design is to be outward. And so sin is awful because it turns your heart inward. It's a scoliosis of the heart. It's the curvation of the heart inward on itself. So you see nothing except yourself. And we were made for greater things than ourselves to such an extent that if you live only for yourself you will live and die this life disappointed you were made for greater things Romans chapter 1 teaches self-righteous people like me that I am far worse than I ever imagined I don't have to be a murderer although that counts I simply have to be selfish Think of what that does to, to, to people like us. We're, we're okay. Most of us are okay. We do good things in this life. If I were to ask you a question, if I were to ask you, hey, are you loving? God calls you to love God and love others. That's the greatest commandment. What would you say? Well, yeah. What's the opposite of love? Hate. I don't hate anybody, so therefore I'm loving. <laughs> I do pretty good things, so I'm, I'm, I'm loving. But the Bible seems to suggest that the opposite of love is not hate, it's selfishness. So let me ask you, 
Have you ever been selfish in your life? If you answer yes to that even once, as I have, you have fallen short of the glorious standard of God's holiness. He who dwells in the splendor of his holiness and is himself perfect love. You see, we're far worse than we imagined. That's why it's going to take a lot more than me standing up here giving you a pep talk about how to be more moral in this life. It's going to require more than for us to just be like, hey, you know, stop it. Be better. Now love everybody. Love the whole world. Right? Because we'll lift our hands, the music will go, we'll get all excited, adrenaline rush, and then we'll go right back out there to what? Broken families. Difficult relationships. Workplaces that we hate. Employers that don't respect us. Employees that don't respect us. A world full of what? Fallen, self-centered people who don't know God. And in doing so, bite and devour one another. That's the jungle that you and I live in. It takes more than a pep talk. We need more than pulling ourselves up. We need a, a fiery, powerful, jealous Savior to step into our business and say, I will change you from the inside out. I believe this was the heart cry of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 and in Romans 8 when he was, he was like ruminating. It was almost like he was processing, like, oh, I try to do the good that I want to do, but I don't do it. I do the evil that I don't want to do. And, oh, oh, and he just goes on and on. He's freaking out. And he pauses for a moment and he says, wretched man that I am. This is how I feel sometimes. Do you ever feel this way? Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is now therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God was able to do what the law was powerless to do in your sinful flesh by sending his son in the likeness of sinful, self-centered flesh. He condemned that in the flesh so that the righteous requirement of God's holiness might be met in us, those who live not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those whose lives are based on living in the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh. But those who, whose lives are based on the spirit have their minds set on the things of the spirit. For to have your mind set on the things of the flesh is death, but to have your mind set on the things of the Holy Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It will not submit to God's holy law because it is unable to do so. And anyone who finds themselves in the flesh cannot please God. However, <laughs> you are no longer in the flesh. 
if the spirit of Christ dwells within you. And if the spirit of Christ raises Jesus Christ from the dead, dwells within you, the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead will bring life to your mortal body by he who dwells within you. We require more than a pep talk, church. We require God leaving his throne, stepping into our business, taking the scoliosis of the heart and unraveling its spine, healing its death, healing its self-centeredness, unraveling its curvature, and opening our dark, spiritual, blinded eyes to something greater than ourselves. And when we do that, it's not just more about being a, a moral person. It's not as simplistic as just trying to be better. We see God in a different fashion. No longer is an angry angry old man just trying to whip his kids in shape, but a loving God who wants more for your life than your heart is capable of providing. But listen to how he does it. The way that Jesus changes self-centered people. Because if I, if I was God, <laughs> it would be a bad day, but if I was God, I would, I would change the heart of a rebel by coming at them with force or by manipulating them or by using my, my great authority and my great strength. You know what God does to rebels? He comes and he serves them. You know how God makes servants? He comes as a servant. Mark chapter 10. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve, giving his life as a ransom for many. The way that Jesus Christ upsets a world of hostile rebels is by coming himself as a humble slave by washing the feet of his most pretentious followers and then for dying for their sins in a place where sinners and thieves deserve to be hung. Secondly, when you put your faith in the atoning work of the cross, in the power of his resurrection, in the righteousness of his life, it's not it's not just that you are believing that he did what he said he would do. It's that the Holy Spirit then comes forth and he binds your heart to his in what people call union with Christ. So you're, not, you're no longer outside of Christ saying, yeah, I, I agree with that, I like that. But by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, there is union between you and Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave his life up for me. He comes as a suffering servant. He dies for all of our mistakes and all of our sin and all of our self-centeredness. And when we put our faith in him, we are unified with the servant king. Now it's at this point that a lot of people will just stop. And that's a that's a good place to stop, right? Because those of you that are passionate about serving Christ, you're like jazzed on that. Yeah! 
He's a servant. He came to serve, and I just want to give my life for him. I'm denying myself. I'm packing my bags. I'm moving to Madagascar. I'll go anywhere that you call me, Lord. I'm just going to do everything for you. You're first place in my life. But do you know that the story doesn't stop there? This is where I want to bring us back around in a circle to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at verse 27 again. Now you are Christ's body. You are individually members of his body. You know what that means? To be unified with Christ in that supernatural way means you are also unified supernaturally to his people. There is no Christianity without God's people. To be sold out for Christ means you are also sold out for Christ's people. To be attached to the head means you are also a part of the body. Meaning that the solution for all of these problems is, yes, Christ, but it is also family. To follow Jesus Christ means that you are to serve Christ's people. Those two are inseparable. There's no room in the church. There's no room in the New Testament or in the Spirit of God for that statement that is so popular today, I love Jesus Christ, but not his church. I understand, I understand where that comes from, and we need to address those areas where the church has made mistakes, where we have been judgmental, hypocritical, we have not been as loving as we ought to be, but no Christian ought to say things like that. To love Christ means that you love Christ's church. And I am not just talking about the universal church. Right? That also becomes a cop-out. Yeah, I love the church everywhere. People that love Jesus. In Thailand. It means that the physical manifestation of that church that God has called you to, the local church, are the people that you've been called to serve. It doesn't mean the institution. It doesn't mean sign up for every program that reality has. It means the body of people that call themselves the church from Sunday to Saturday. Now, in one aspect, it means that it's, it's everyone. You know, in Carpinteria Ventura and Santa Barbara, we're in a group of people that number in the hundreds. To some extent, it means we are all this big extended family. So maybe we come together for Thanksgiving, we throw a party and we talk to one another, but day in and day out, it's your, it's your deep core family. You know what I mean? It's those five or six people that are in your life all the time. For some of you, it might be a calm group. In that case, it's probably not six or seven, it's like 20, but it's that 20. If you're not in a calm group, it might be a select like six or seven people. Those are the people that you spend life with in the body of Christ that you go eat with, that you tell uh, your sin, that you ask for prayer, that you rejoice with, that you weep with. It is these that God has called us to serve. And following Jesus means serving one another. 
See, there's, there's a lot of things we could be known for on the coastland. There's probably a lot of things we are known for. We could be known for the lights. We could be known for having carpets at the front. We could be known for a specific style of worship, specific style of teaching. We could be known for uh, specific programs. We could be known for being a big church. There's a lot of things we can be known by that perhaps we are known by. We should be known by the outsider as a group of people that serve. Perhaps you would say, no, we should be known because of Jesus. Yeah, but what does that really mean? Well, we should be known because we enjoy Jesus. We love Jesus. We're all about Jesus. We exalt Jesus. We follow Jesus. We're disciples of Jesus. Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Meaning the tangible way that our union with Christ is manifest is by how we treat each other. And I must confess tonight, as a hyper-introvert, I have failed in that regard in far too many areas and far too many times than I would like to admit. My heart often, even though it's been set free, longs to curve back in on itself. I need the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit to change that. I need the hinges of heaven. (laughs) I think it's interesting that in our text in 1 Corinthians 12, you know, that's not the only gift he goes through. He's like, there's in the church, we're all one body, individually members of it. And God has ordained certain gifts, uh, uh, apostolic gift. There's uh, prophets, there's teachers, um, there's all of these things. There's a gift of tongues, there's a gift of working of miracles, there's a gift of healing, there's a gift of helps, there's a gift of administrations, a uh, gift of interpretation of tongues. He goes through this entire list. And then shortly after the list, he, he, he's trying to make a point that we all need each other. Not everybody has every gift. And he says this emphatically. He says, not everyone has a gift of tongues, right? Not everyone is an apostle, right? Not everyone has, has this, and not everyone has that, and not everyone has this, and he goes through the entire list uh, asking rhetorical questions. He's clearly saying not everybody has these gifts. But he leaves out a couple. He, lives at, he leaves out the gift of helps and the gift of administration. In a sense, it seems like Paul is implying or suggesting that not everyone will have all of these supernatural gifts, but all of you should have a heart of service for one another. Certain things are not just for a select few. Certain things should span the entire body of Christ. Since we are that family that has been set down in a culture that is largely self-serving, we are called to be a beacon of hope that is fighting against the current, saying, This is what Christ has done to us. He serves us, and now we serve each other. Won't you be a part of this family? It's a different way of living. That's why if you don't know what your gift is, perhaps you've been asking yourself as we've been going through the summer of the Spirit, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. 
What do I do? Can't be effective in the kingdom unless I have a spiritual gift, right? Well, you do have a spiritual gift whether you realize it or not. But if you don't know what it is, one of the best things you could do, uh, Pastor Britt once told me this years ago. He said, Lazo, you don't know what to do? Just start serving. Serving seems to be the foundational gift behind every other spiritual gift. Without it, all the gifts are meaningless. So just start serving. If the gift of teaching is your gift or you think it's your gift, you don't need to teach. Just start serving. That might have nothing to do with teaching. Just sweep a carpet or something. Sweep a carpet? Vacuum a carpet? Sweep a carpet. God will bless it. Do you know a widow that needs some help around the house? Help her out. Do you know a newly... uh, newlywed couple that needs some cash, throw down. Do you know a couple that has recently had a kid? Maybe uh, bring them some food the first couple weeks of their marriage. Some of you perhaps have the gift of administration. You're the one who organizes a bunch of people that will serve a newlywed couple that just had a kid making them food. But then there's those of you that will have the gift of service come upon you. Now, all of us are called to serve. But then a select few of us, maybe a lot of us, the Holy Spirit actually comes upon you in power to serve. And here's what that looks like. There's some of us in this body who just love to do it. Some of us just do it because we know God has called us to, but some of us love to do it against all normative measures in the world today. We just love it. We're that person that doesn't care if nobody sees us. We're just draping away at the floor and we just love dirt. And we're just, oh, yeah, for the glory of God. And we see the big picture. We don't care if anybody's talking to us or if we're doing something out of the ordinary or bizarre. We know that we are sweeping for the kingdom of the living God. And you know what's so special about people with the gift of, the, uh, with the gift of service and helps? It's not just that they're more exuberant about helping than everybody else. It's that their heart is set right. You know why? Because chances are is if you run into someone who has been empowered with the gift of service, something will happen to your heart. You won't just want to get busy. Oh, you'll get busy all right. If you're around the right person, you want to just do something with your hands, with your, with your voice, with, with, with whatever God has given you, but something far deeper. You will see in their service a fixating of your eyes on the greatest servant of all. That's what the gift of service does. It points us back to the one who came not to be served, but to serve. And it changes the way we treat each other. We can think of those types of people as the cheerleaders of the church. They push us towards the front lines with our eyes on Jesus Christ. So we need a bunch of those. But we all need a special work inside of our hearts to turn it from inward to outward. I want to leave you with a word from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 11. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, (laughs) existing in the form of God, 
did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. If you're more selfish than you would like to admit, the best thing for you to do this morning is not to try to unselfish yourself, but to get into the presence of Jesus Christ. It's what we were made for, man. Heavenly Father, may it be done according to your word. We ask today, Lord, that as we seek your face, that we would find you, and most importantly, we would be found by you in the secret place of the Most High God, in the shadow of your wings. Because, Lord, we bring to this place, we bring to this congregation hurt and pain, difficulties and trials, tremendous loss, confusion. For some of us, none of that. We bring prosperity and success and all of these things that the world would like to tell us we did ourselves. And those who are suffering, the world would like to tell us that we are alone. And God, your nearness is our good. So we pray that today you would be near as we worship your holy name. You would open up the floodgates of heaven. You would step into our hearts and you would reveal all of the darkness, a light shining through. And you would arrange furniture the way that you destined. And you would step in. You would make your dwelling in us. Not just us as individuals, but us for now and forevermore as a family. We love you, Christ. You be exalted forever.